Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. My name is Joe Lowry, and I am joined by Jordan Angeli, as always. Jordan had the unique experience of being at that 3-2 United States men's national team win over Mexico on Sunday night in the Nations League final. Jordan, first of all, hello, how are you? Second of all, that game was insane. What was it like to be there? Hi, Joe. I am doing pretty good. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the question in answer number one. Yep. Answer number two, ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I brought one of my good friends. So this is, you know, everybody is in this break right now. We're in international break. And I told you earlier, like, it's been my spring break. I've just been bouncing around and living life, which has been so nice. So I came back home to Colorado actually to celebrate my nephew's birthday. And it just so happens that the Nations League was here and I got to go to the game. It was ridiculous. I took a friend of mine who has never been to a soccer game before. So quite opposite of me. And she was mesmerized. Um, Let me just list to you the things that she got to experience. (laughs) Um, we walked into the game and it was two to nothing. And, um, because we were late because it was my, my, my um, nephew's birthday, we walked in the game, the scoreboard said two to nothing. Then, you know, the goal by Gio Reyna happens and halftime comes and we weren't even looking at the scoreboard and halftime says one to one. And I'm like, (laughs) what actually just happened? I'm not sure what happened. You know, found some people figured out what, what happened at the beginning of the game. So I got, we got looped in. But she saw that, so she got some examples of VAR. She got, she had, um, we saw a fight in front of us where a guy was gushing blood because it was a U.S. fan and a Mexico fan fist fighting in front of us. Um, so we had to scatter into a different row. When I'm saying in front of us, in the row, I'm ki- not kidding, the row in front wow. of us. Wow, nice. Yeah, it nice. was intense. It was intense. She saw um, objects being thrown on the field, which was disgraceful. She saw Mexico score and the whole audience go crazy and get beer showered by about everybody, which she was cracking up about. Um, an incredible game. PKs, the PK save. I mean, she got it all. And she was like, are all soccer games like this? I'm like, uh, what do I want to tell her now? Do I want to say yes? Do I want to say yes? Or do I want to be truthful and say no, but for your first game, you know, this is a pretty one, a pretty good one to go to. So that was my experience. It was wild. Oh wild. my goodness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What a perfect game to introduce someone to actually going and watching a game. Because for me, you know, sitting at home, that game was already insane, right? Just absolutely bonkers. Taylor and I recorded a, a kind of a quick reaction show late last night, early morning for him. And I think I said the word bonkers about eight times and we recorded about it again this morning. <laughs> And it, it truly is, I guess, my central thought about that game, not, not not a tactical thought, but that is one of the best games I've ever seen. One of the best U.S.-Mexico games of all time, easily. Just mm-hmm. so entertaining. Mm-hmm. The U.S. coming back from two separate holes after going down early. Then mm-hmm. they come back and score from Gio Reyna. They go down again after Diego Linus cuts inside so beautifully. Just what a player coming <sighs> in from that right wing. And then, and then Weston McKinney grabs the header. And then extra time with all the insanity, Tata Martino getting a red card, putting his arm around the referee, Greg Berhalter over there, too. I mean, just the scenes watching at home were ridiculous. I can't even imagine what mm-hmm. it was like to actually be there. Yeah, we'll see that. Like you just talking about Tata Martino. We didn't know what happened you yeah. know, in the stadium. You have no idea what's happening. But I did 
you know, when it went to VAR and everybody went over there in the heat of the game was you just knew that like something bad was going to happen with all of those people in that one area huddled around that VAR machine. So, um, yeah, I, and then we see Tata Martino leaving and I'm like, what is happening? What is happening? It was, yeah, I think bonkers might be the perfect word to describe it, but there was a lot of good moments. You know, I was there trying to explain the offside rule to my friend, which (laughs) Don't try to do that. Challenging. Um, but even in the midst of that, yeah, there, there are so many good things that I missed. And one of the things I noticed right away, June, I don't know if you guys talked about this today. I'll, I'll have to go listen to that episode. But I felt like the U.S. played in like this very interesting formation with the back line. Yeah. It yeah. was like a, a, a three back that shifted into a four back. So Serginho Dust could push on and get high and inside i don't know it was interesting i, I what did you th- notice from it because you're seeing it from a different standpoint than sure, i am i was sure. in the the south end zone yeah i love that you went to this game with your friend and you're explaining the offside rule to her but also you're taking mental notes about the shape that the, that the u.s played i've talked about this with with a yeah. few different people before some some college coaches and things like that just about how challenging it is to turn off that part of your brain when you've been watching That's soccer so games, like like you watch them and like I watch them, when you've been doing that for mm-hmm. long enough, and you've been doing it for longer than me, like it's hard to flip that switch back off again. So I, I appreciate how you watch that game, even being there in person. Yeah, it was this, Beralter called it adaptive after the game. It was this fluid shape. And it, it ended up being mostly, I think, a four four two, with Serginho Des pushing yeah. up to be a left mid in, in the line of four and Tim Ream playing left back. But it was designed to, as the U.S. stepped forward to press, it was designed to have Gio Reyna, Pulisic, and Sargent be that front three. And then you have Dest as a left wing back and Yedlin on the right, and then you have the back three, the double pivot in front of them. It was fluid, and Berhalter purposefully set his team up that way in a way he's never done before. That was my most interesting, my my biggest tactical takeaway, I guess, is just Berhalter was bold enough and maybe foolish, I don't know, in a a final of an actual competition against a, a strong Mexico team to pull something out of his bag that he's never pulled out before. I don't think he's ever done that with the crew. I don't think he ever did that when he was coaching in Europe. And I'd never seen him do that with the U.S. national team before. But it was mm-hmm. it was interesting, man. It really was. Yeah, it was fun to watch. And, and there was – it was very – the emotions and the intensity of the game. I, I know you guys at, at home saw that there was – they ended up pausing the game for a little bit and it wasn't just fighting in the stands that I mentioned, right? There's, there was fighting on the field. Like the rivalry is real. It's not made up. It is there. It is heated. And even my friend was like, is that our coach like running onto the field? Like there were so many moments where you could just see the, 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 how much it meant to Burhalter to win this game. And I think there are things that happen in that game. When you talk about big picture qualifying in CONCACAF, there are some things that toughened this team up a little bit because when you play in these CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers and things are a little unsteady in different countries and you're getting things thrown at you, you don't know what to expect. And to get a taste of that here, I think was in a way, you know, I never want to see that, but in a way it kind of gets you prepped and ready to fight and be aggressive in those games that are going to mean the most. Yeah, there's only one more game that this first choice group for the U.S. is going to play before World Cup qualifiers. It'll be a Costa Rica friendly on Wednesday, uh, I believe. Again in, in Denver, it, do- it doesn't matter where that game's being played, but yeah, it's in Utah. Okay, in Utah, there we go. So I mean, they'll have one more chance to run things out with with some players in this group 
But yeah, this is it, Jordan. Like that was their prep for World Cup qualifying. That in the Honduras game, and I guess the Switzerland game before right. that, in a little bit of a different way. But a great test for this group. The game could have gone so much differently, but it was an all-time classic. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Who, who is your player of the match? Oh, it's got to be Weston McKinney, right? Just because for me, the U.S. had so mm-hmm. little, so little impact in open play offensively, but McKinney brought the impact mm-hmm. on set pieces, at least in terms of field players. Yeah. He's my player of the game. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I would have to rewatch the game to give you a good answer because that's why I asked you. You watched it twice, sure. And I'm like, you clearly saw it more than me. Um, and I wouldn't disagree. Like, I just think every game that he plays for the U.S., he's been all over the place. Um, but I thought that um, Brooks did a really good job yeah. too as oh, the center yeah. back. I feel like he was solid, especially. I didn't see the beginning of the game, but I heard what happened and to steady the back line and make really good decisions in the midst of like a little bit of chaos and a really creative and attacking um, you in different ways. This Mexican team was creative in their attack. And I felt like he studied that side of the, the defense and really defensive line for the majority of the game. Yeah, we've given credit to a center back, so we can just end this episode right here, right now. No, John Brooks was yeah. was so good. Offensively, he he broke lines with his passing. Defensively, he recovered it and didn't get that second yellow after getting one inside the first 10 minutes right. after fouling yes. Chucky Lozano. Just such a strong performance from him. A, a really impressive performance from the United States, and it makes me look forward to future rivalry games between these two teams because Mexico, they're very, very, very good. Still, I think the best team in this region and so getting a chance to see them more down the line is going to be exciting. Jordan, we've kind of gone, we've, well, we've gone off the normal beaten path for us by talking about international soccer. But as you mentioned, it is the international break. We're kind of going to break this show up into a few sections. We're going to talk national team, which we've already done. We're going to talk a little bit of MLS as well. And then we've got a listener question that we're going to round out the show with. When we're trying to figure out what to talk about from a Major League Soccer standpoint, we wanted to talk about teams that maybe we haven't touched on quite as much this year. And so we didn't have to look too far up the table to find that. We just picked the two teams at the bottom of each conference. We want to talk about FC Dallas and FC Cincinnati. Why are they at the bottom? We kind of did something like this last year, right before, or right at the start of the COVID break for Major League Soccer that lasted longer than we expected But we've got two teams, Cincinnati with four points at the bottom of the Eastern Conference and FC Dallas down at the bottom of the West with six points. And and we kind of want to go through and look at why these teams are at the bottom and if there's any hope of fixing them. Yeah, which um, if there is and we get this right, I feel like they're going to owe us. I mean, I think we can try to get Yopstam and Luchi Gonzalez to, to Venmo us. Um, we might have mixed yeah. success, but yeah. it, it's worth a shot, right? It's worth an email. Come on. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, who do you want to start with, Cincinnati or Dallas? Let's start with Dallas. Why not, right? Okay. They're, they're sitting on a win and three draws at the bottom of the West. And it's still compact, right? None of these teams are necessarily right. doomed to being at the bottom I mean, things things under Luchi Gonzalez, looking big picture to start out with here, have not gone really how I thought they were going to. And I, I certainly don't think they've gone how people in Dallas thought they were going to. But I, I will say, I guess this is tipping my hand early on in this discussion. I think uh, I think Dallas are a lot better team than their spot in the standings currently makes them look like they are. Yeah, and I, I think that that's one of the one of the things that you look at is it's I think that game against Colorado where they gave up three goals was a little bit of an outlier, right? They're, they're not a team that constantly gives up a lot of opportunities on goal or even goals at the end of those opportunities. So I think that 
if you take that one away, it's not as if they're giving up a ton of goals and they're constantly getting broken down. I think what what's interesting is when you look at this Dallas squad and they've brought so many players up over the years, like how much does that affect keeping some cohesion and some consistency and some ability to keep um, some of these bright players there versus selling them, right? I think that then you get into these situations where potentially, I'm not saying that this is what's happening, but you get into this where you want to be successful so you can move on. And there you maybe don't have a team, not not a team outlook, but that idea of a team and team performances doesn't stand at the same weight of getting sold, um, which is a tricky thing to do, yeah. right? And I think that it's tricky in general as a professional athlete is you want to be as successful as you can because that means a lot of things. It means more money in your bank. It means potential moves. It means success and trades to other teams or, or um, moves to other teams. But like, if you're not putting the team first, then does that stuff happen for you? So I don't know. That's just one of the thoughts I have with Dallas. I feel like this is a very allocation disordery kind of point, but, but Dallas are entering into a really unique st- you know, point in their team's life cycle. Really, they're the first MLS team that I yeah. can think of to be in this, this period of time where they're developing talent and they've sold some of that talent, but they're trying to figure out how to use it while it's still around and win with it. And they haven't been able to do that yet. And even this year, it's hard with Paxton Pomichol because he's proven to be just so fragile um, from an injury standpoint. But we're not really seeing a whole lot of young American talent play. We're seeing Tanner Tessman start, and he started you know, a good number of games this season. We're seeing a little bit of Pepe off the bench. But it's been a lot of the more established guys for Lucha Gonzalez. Brian Acosta still getting a ton of minutes mm-hmm. in central midfield. Ricarte obviously is going to play no matter what because he's just a different profile. But they, they'll bring in international players to either take minutes from, from the younger guys or to just be competition or, or to complement those players. Either way, Dallas is in a, in a stage in their life cycle right now where they're trying to figure out how to effectively use their roster and use the talent they're producing. I, I hinted at earlier yeah. the, the, the fact that I think Dallas might be a little bit better than their numbers or than their spot at the bottom of the Western Conference indicates. Jordan, I totally agree with your outlook on that Colorado game. Uh, that was yeah. a game that I think Dallas largely controlled and, and they created chances as well. They've created chances this season. And, and that, I think, has been Dallas's biggest problem in the past. They've created 11 expected goals, according to FB Ref, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ninth, I believe, in Major League Soccer. It's not elite. But it's not bad, right? That's right. not worst in the Western right. Conference type of bad. And then as far as allowing XG, they're they're not in in the top few spots, but they're about average in Major League Soccer so far in terms of yeah. expected goals allowed. They've allowed ten point six, so they're about plus plus point four. Which again, you you think they'd be higher in the Western Conference? I think this team, with the chances that they're creating, with with the new players they brought in, with Vargas and, and O'Brien up top, there's room for them to produce more. There's certainly room for Frank Ojada to produce more as that number nine. But yeah. there's real talent here, and I, I would be fairly encouraged if I'm a Dallas fan, at least relative to where you are on the table right now. Yeah, and you were saying that they have 11 expected goals on the season? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yep. And they've scored four goals. It, so exactly. I think when you, if you just look at that, you're you're saying okay well maybe the issue is not so much about what we're doing defensively it's just ha- taking a hold of these opportunities yeah. and making sure that we make three more count i mean if you make three more count that could be a win against minnesota and a win against houston that's three more goals and then you're sitting in a totally different place 
Yeah. A, a team that I don't think quite has the same promising outlook is the team at the bottom of the Eastern Conference, FC Cincinnati. They've they've tweaked things. They've changed things already this season, uh, starting in a four at the back shape at the beginning of the year. Then they bring in Jeff Cameron and they shift to a back five. It's it sort of helped, I guess. I think they've limited uh, the the quality of opposing chances more so necessarily than the quantity. They they give up so many shots, like uh, you know more than almost any other team in MLS. But they oftentimes have numbers behind the ball, so that are still not giving up the highest quality chances. I still struggle though with Cincinnati, given they've given up so many expected goals already this season. They're, I believe, second worst in MLS in terms of expected goals allowed with 14.6. And they don't create an overwhelming number of chances either. They're third to last in MLS with seven expected goals so far, just ahead of RSL and Columbus. Um, it's, it's bleak in Cincinnati, and it's been bleak for a while. The team is still not executing simple things, and you're seeing it show up in, in box scores and even in the underlying numbers as well. Well, when you just are talking about that, I think the one of the things that just makes my brain hurt a little bit is you bring in Jeff Cameron, who is a center back and sturdy in the back, and then you bring another number in the back line. And that seems to be the opposite. If you bring in a player that you know is going to be good in the back line, wouldn't you limit then the number of players you have in the back line and say, hey, you can take care of this. We trust you. Do what you're doing. And then we can have more players in the attack because it's not as if they're not without players that can go forward and attack and have have a success going forward. But by by pulling another player back into the back line and playing that five, that then, you know, shifts into a three. I just, I don't agree with that. I say you, you put Jeff Cameron in there and you say, you lead this back line. You're in charge. It's on you. I think that's always been who he is. Like he's a guy that wants to step up to that challenge. So maybe to me, that's a true... I don't know. What's, what's the goal here for Yopstam, right? What's, and, and that's, I think, what is the hardest part about all this. What is the goal? Are we going to be super defensive? Are we going to be solid defensively so we can build what we're being going forward? And I feel like there's been so many turns that they've never established, okay, this is who we're going to be under this manager. Do you yeah. feel like that? No, I absolutely feel like that. It's been, and part of this is such a hard thing for Yapstam coming in in the midst of chaos. How does he solve mm-hmm. chaos when decisions are being made about personnel? Decisions are being made above him uh, from from decision makers about personnel. It's hard, right? And, and we haven't seen this team establish any sort of identity of how they want to play. The two teams they played most recently, uh, Montreal a couple weeks ago, they lost. Uh, they, they beat Montreal, excuse me, two to one. They have a way of playing under Wilfred Nancy already. Just seven or eight games yeah. into the year for Montreal, they have a shape. That's, that's been tweaked a little bit at times in midfield especially, but they have a shape. They're sturdy defensively. They can create offensively. Georgi Mihailovic has this nice role as a, as a 10, as a left-sided number 8. We know some things to expect from them. New England Revolution, their most recent game. Cincinnati lose that game one to nothing. They have a style. This year it's been Carlos Hill as a number 10, underneath a number 9. Bruce Arena has this team capable of playing in possession, but they'll also sit deeper. Cincinnati can do all those things, but they don't do any of them in an in actual solid, definable kind of way right now. And the personnel is weird in midfield at times, and the personnel in the back line is weird at times. They have talent. The building blocks are there. You know, they were expensive building blocks in a lot of ways, but they have pieces to be competitive. But it it all it all the time, it constantly for me with Cincinnati feels like they need a reset. And you can't keep resetting over and over again and expect to break out of the bottom of the Eastern Conference. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. To build trust, you have to say, okay, this is how we're going to play. 
and it's not always going to go, especially at the beginning, it's not always going to go right, but we're not going to deviate from our principles of play, whatever those principles may be, this is how we're going to play. And there is some things that might switch back and forth, like little tweaks, as you said, right? There's going to be little tweaks that you have to do little wrinkles that you throw in. But I feel like their principles are I don't even know if they're established. Like you don't know what to expect when you're watching them. And I think that's the hardest thing to build trust with your head coach, trust with your teammates to know, okay, that person, I know what they is expected of them. They know what's expected of me. Now we, if, if they're not there, I can fill in for them. Cause I know that they know what's expected of me too. And they'll fill in for me. If that makes sense. Yeah. I just feel like it's a little, whew, I don't know. It's wild there. I will, give, I, I will give some hope to Cincinnati fans, or I'll at least give okay. one positive point. I think Lucho Acosta has been very good this season. He's been exactly what Cincinnati have needed him to be. I, I mean, they need him to score 20 goals and have 20 assists. But he's been as good as they realistically could have expected him to be. It's a shame because Cincinnati's still missing that that link tactically, not even necessarily from a personnel standpoint, but between defense and attack that will allow players like Lucho Acosta and Brenner and, and maybe Yuya Kubo and Lacadia and, and Barrial and just the, the attacking talent that they actually have, they're still missing that connection. Maybe it's mental, maybe it's tactical, yeah. maybe it's personnel. I, I really don't know. But Lucho Acosta has been good for this team. He's smooth on the ball. He's able to get out of tight spots. He has been, I think, the biggest bright spot for this team so far this year. Yeah, I think it's all those things. And just to wrap it up with this, is it's the hardest thing, and we've talked about this a lot, the hardest thing to gel is those last you know the last pass the creativity in the final third knowing what the player next to you is going to do so I I think that that will continue to build and be something that does gel but again if you go back to okay what does the manager expect from us if that is an unknown or it's constantly changing then I might play the pass that I think is open, but you're in a different spot because you're like, Oh, well, I'm not supposed to be there. Cause you're, so you're overthinking the game. You're overthinking it. And and that's a little bit of what I see. It's like, it's like, Oh, I, there's a difference between knowing what to do and overthinking. You have to feel the game, you know what to do, but you feel the game versus, okay, I'm overthinking and constantly wondering what the manager wants me to do or what my teammate thinks I should be doing. That's not the way you want to play. It's stiff. It's difficult to have success. Um, and they don't feel like they feel it a lot versus like a New England team who does feel that. In terms of how we fix these teams uh, with Dallas, my answer is just keep doing what you're doing, but maybe kindly ask Frank O'Hara mm-hmm. to finish. Um, that's that's my <laughs> that's my fix at Dallas. And and maybe if, yeah. if you think Paxton Pomichol can go give him a start because he is a top central midfielder in this league, regardless of nationality. But I, I believe in Dallas right now. Jordan, for Cincinnati, is there like how how do you how do you do it? Can you fix this team tactically? Is there something just even a small a small point that you can latch on to to try to provide some sort of foothold for this team as they go forward this year? I would say stick to a four back, whatever it looks like. And I would do a four, two, three, one. Okay. Simple. Yeah, it's easy to execute. You have the players and the personnel to, to have that type of system. Four, two, three, one and stick to it. And, and really hone in on letting, you know, that back line lead with Jeff Cameron. Okay. Is he the player that we think he can be in this team? Give him the ability to lead and then move from there. Because I think you, it's just too much to ask them to continue to change formations and tactics and all these things. Like 
just start with one thing and build off of it. And now they have what, three weeks to really work on whatever that may be. So hopefully they're doing that right now. <laughs> hopefully we'll send uh Yops time. We'll send you our Venmos uh, as with Lucci and you guys can get that, uh, that cashola over to us quickly. We've talked to US Men's National Team. We've talked MLS. The final segment of our show, listener question. This one is from Richard Rolson, who says, I was listening to Joe and Taylor discuss the US Men's National Team game against Honduras on the Total Soccer Show. And my question is, this is specifically, I think, for you, Jordan, based off your experience. What are things a coach can do to increase the speed of play for their team. That was a, an issue for the U.S. men's national team in that game against Honduras. What are some things, Jordan, that your coaches did to speed up your team's play? I think this is a great question from Richard, and I'm really curious. Yeah. Jordan, how do you how do you get a team to play faster? Because so many teams need that, particularly in possession, which I think is what Richard is talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question and maybe helpful for the coaches listening to say, okay, maybe I can implement some of these things in training. And it all starts in training, right? And because you train these things, the reason you have training is you're constantly working on patterns or um, implementing different tactics that then you can use in a game and it can feel like it's just a natural thing. So a couple of things that we would do when I was playing is um, if you're in, even if you're in a possession drill, uh, if you have the ball and you play the ball, you have to sprint for five yards after that. So with that, Joe, there's constant movement, right? Because I sprinted, the defense has to shift and then maybe somebody else gets open and the person on the ball has another option. Not only the running player that just passed it, but the player that's then moving into the space that wasn't occupied. Um, so it's movement off the ball, I think, is something that people don't think of a lot when they're thinking about speed of play is can you teach your players that movement off the ball doesn't have to be a 40 yard run right in behind. We saw some of those last night from the U S men's national team, but movement off the ball could be checking into your defender and popping off to space and just getting five yards. If you do that quickly, well, then you're going to have more space. You can get it and, and find the next pass in order to find the next pass. You have to be constantly checking your shoulder. So asking your players to constantly be looking around and knowing where the next option is. And then I would say the last thing that one of the drills that I can remember is uh, playing a game where you're playing two touch to start. And then the next possession game is only one touch. So you're moving off the ball has to be even more. And then the next possession game is you have one touch. And if I pass it to you, Joe, you have two touches. And then the next person has one touch. And then the next person has two touch. So it's kind of this back and forth pattern. But what that does is you're one, you're thinking about what's next. So you know that your movement has to maybe be a little bit faster if that person only has one touch or you have to create that space or let defenders shift so you know that the space is is where they're going to be leaving. Those are kind of the things that I think that coaches do. But if you're in the middle of the game and forgive me, I didn't watch that game on Thursday. <laughs> you didn't miss much. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, guys. I don't watch every soccer game. I know that you don't believe that. Um, <laughs> but but it is, you know, this is where you call on players to ask those things of their teammates during the run of play. Right. It is the texture on the ball and how fast you're playing it from one side to the other, because I think that, you know, just working for the crew, that's one of the things I talk about a lot on in games is being able to switch from this slow progression of, okay, we're passing it around. We're watching the defense move. And then 
the way that the player plays the ball into a target forward, it is clean, it's crisp, it has a lot of pace on it, and that can kickstart movement off the ball and, you know, a different um, pace of play from the team. So I think there's a lot of different things in there that I mentioned. You know, it's the the pace on the ball, it's checking your shoulder, it's movement off the ball um, and recognizing where the space is going to be. But you have to call on yourself to be that difference maker, right? If it's too slow, then who's the player that's going to decide, all right, we have to be faster. And it, it, it works with their movement, the texture they put on the ball and their ability to know where the options are. So I know that's a long answer, no. but I hope that's helpful. No, I think that's fascinating. First of all, I, I like the progression. I'm sort of imagining it in my head as a progression of movement off the ball being the first step, because assuming someone else has the ball, you're going to be off the ball. So how are you moving? Yeah. Are you making that that longer sprint? Are you making a short sprint to, to move a defender? Or in certain moments, are you standing still because that's where the space is? But either way, your movement off the ball, then as the ball is coming to you after you've moved off the ball into space, checking your shoulder so that you can play faster when you yeah. get the ball. How how aware are you of what's happening around you? How quickly can you make your next decision? Do you know what your next decision is before you get the ball? So step one, off the ball movement. Step two, checking your shoulder to be spatially aware. And then step three, being mm-hmm. purposeful with the ball when you do have it. You know, you talk about texture right. and, and, and how many touches you're taking and how the speed of the ball, what, what that looks like. I think yeah. obviously there's more into it. There, there's more that goes into it from a tactical standpoint, making adjustments in game. And I know there's lots of other ways to, to train this. But I like that that pretty simple three-step progression of maybe even just things to be looking for to see if a team's moving the ball quickly and, and effectively in-game. That can be things for, for Richard, for you to watch for if you're watching a game and trying to break it down, or, or Jordan, you and I, or anybody out there. I think that's a pretty natural mm-hmm. three-step sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boom. You know, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a simple game, but we complicate it sometimes too, you know? <laughs> is soccer simple and we make it more complicated than it is, or is it more complicated and we make it simpler than it is? I, I don't know. Yes. That is the chicken and the egg, right? Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, it is. It's, I think I just <laughs> broke my brain. Keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is well said, Jordan. We do keep coming back. I appreciate you, Jordan Angeli, taking time out of your spring break to, uh, to chat with me <laughs> and to put out an episode. Um, I think this was a fun one. We, we talked about a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, Jordan, thank you for taking time to talk about soccer with me. Thanks, thanks, Joe. That was so much fun. Listeners, thank you all for listening, and we will be back again soon.